Welcome to the first Wednesday interview of 2022. I'm Anthony Day and this is the Sustainable Futures Report. It's Wednesday the 12th of January. Today we have a discussion with two patrons about the future of electric vehicles. Electric vehicles are finally making headway in terms of new car sales and there are many reports that say that if we are to achieve net zero by 2050, most of the global transport fleet, cars, trucks, buses, trains, even aircraft will have to be electric. So are electric vehicles the answer? And if they are, have we asked the right question? I'm joined by two specialists to try and answer that. Catherine Wheatman has an MSc in Logistics and Distribution from the Cranfield School of Management. She's a director of Rethink Global, a circular economy coach and consultant. She's host of the Circular Economy podcast and author of a Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains. She's an advisory board member at UK Manufacturing Symbiosis Network Plus and was a visiting fellow at the University of Huddersfield Business School. Catherine, welcome. Hi, Anthony. Good to see you. Adrian Bond is a chartered electronics engineer for over 20 years with the Institution of Engineering and Technology. He's an advocate for renewables and sustainable living, including having an air-to-air -air heat pump, solar panels, battery storage, and he's been driving electrified vehicles since 2008. He's an advisor to Colchester Borough Council on traffic air quality and electric vehicle initiatives and has a particular concern about local air quality. Adrian, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. Pleasure. Is the electric vehicle the answer? They're clean. They use far less resources in manufacture than internal combustion engine cars because they're simpler. And if you can charge at home, they're much cheaper to run. Are electric vehicles the future? Is it as simple as that? Catherine, would you like to start with that? Um, yeah, well, just to go back to the to the less resources, yes, they're a lot less complicated because of um, no need for gearboxes and all that kind of thing. But we need to think about the key resources that most electric vehicles are using, um, you know, which are um, not particularly prevalent materials like lithium. Um, so we might be using less resources, but we're using more critically um, required resources that are also needed for lots of other clean technologies. Um, and whilst they're a bit greener, we're, we're still driving them around, we're still um, emitting uh particulates and so on from tire use and all that kind of thing and we're not really designing the cars any differently apart from you know the engine's different but the whole design of the car still isn't evolving towards a car that's upgradable a car that could last for 50 plus years like some of the ones um we still see around that were you know built in the 1930s how, how have we forgotten to how to design for durability that that seems to be a bit of a a backward step. Adrian, you drive an electric car. Is yours going to last 50 years? Um, I'm not sure I've got many cars which will last about 50 years. Um, but to go back to your original point there, um, and this is something which I think we picked up very early on, was uh, are electric cars less resourceful to make? And that in itself is, is a misnomer. Um, I am in no um, qualms that electric vehicles are not green they are 
possibly better alternatives than what we've got at the moment. But um, various research, one of the best ones is by the Volvo Group and Polestar, showed that electric vehicles take more resources to build than your average internal combustion engine vehicle. And as Catherine's just said, the bulk of that is the special materials, the, uh, the lithium, the nickel, the um, cobalt, which I'm sure we'll go on to. And they add an overhead, which the internal combustion engine vehicles just don't have. The issue is then is context and does that is that investment worth it? And hopefully we'll, we'll go through that later on. But are they better than the alternatives? I would say yes. Whether well, the last 20, 30, 40 years, the cars probably won't, but we're already seeing that the batteries probably will. Um, and hopefully we can cover that a little later on as well. So if we're looking at cars uh, as a particular section of transport, are we actually approaching the problem of transport from the right direction? Because we know that 95% or rather that the, the private car is idle for 95% of its life. Also, national governments tend to stimulate the car industry because it's an economic driver. And that means they encourage people to dispose of their cars in a relatively short time. There are two issues. How are we going to get over the government's insistence that we should have a vibrant motor industry? And the other one is, how are we going to encourage people to give up the convenience of the private car if that's what we need to do? Mm. Should I take that one? Yes. Yes. Sorry, I've given you two there. So which one do you like to start with? Um, well, the, the, the transport is, is um, as I've been asked many times, you know, would an EV suit me? It's a case of, can you find an alternative first? To compare sustainability environmentally, there are much better alternatives than a two-ton resource-intensive box sat in a drive or work 95% of the time. If you can walk, then we should do. Cycle, if there's cycle paths, if there's places to do it, we should do. Um, shared transport, um, public transport, if there's a good route for you, if there's good um, service in your area, even shared um, use of electric vehicles, um, I would always advocate electric vehicles over the others, they are coming very prevalent now. Um, many colleagues I know live in London and they will hire a car by the hour to do that big trip they need to do. And then so 200 people will use that car in a month as opposed to two. And that, I would say they're much better alternatives. And then only then, if life has meant that you have to have a vehicle because the way that communities have grown, then then I'd rather somebody went for something electric than the uh, than the alternatives. Catherine, if I'm right, you're in Swaledale in North Yorkshire. Many buses out there? Um, we have one community organised bus, um, but it doesn't doesn't leave the area early enough for people to use it to commute into the nearest town. So public transport is a big issue. And I think it's something that's been coming up into the national parks, as we've seen increased tourist traffic um, through, you know, staycations and so on, that congestion and uh, parking and, and all the rest of it with every um, every visitor coming in, in a, into the park in a car uh, can become an issue. So I think Adrian's right that there, there may be need to be two solutions, um, you know, people who don't have access to public transport and for whom, you know, walk, walking, it's 10 miles to our nearest town. So um, walking or even cycling to go and get the shopping and it's it's not flat either um, so I suppose electric bikes can can help with that but making the whole making mobility 
a convenient solution is something the government could do a lot about. If we look at what happens in London, where um, you know you can have a um, a card that gives you access to the tube and the bus, um, so that makes it simpler. Why haven't we got that rolled out across the entire country? Um, you know, why why aren't all the services connected so you can easily see how you can use bus, train, um, even um, taxis and so on um, to, to link with all of that. And thinking about um, ride hailing as well as car sharing. Uber is a brilliant model. Uber is a circular economy model because it's all about sharing. Um, but unfortunately, it's quite exploitative um, for the, you know, the drivers and sometimes even for the customers using its surge pricing model. But there's no reason why that same algorithm couldn't be used as part of a, a regional mobility system? Why couldn't it be community owned? Why couldn't surge pricing be used to lower the price if the weather's really awful to give people an option other than walking or cycling? Uh, and the price goes a bit higher when the weather's good enough to, to walk or bike, um, you know, and maybe time of day and safety and, you know, the the age of the person and all that, that all of that could be taken into account. So it becomes part of a mobility system. Um, including maybe um, paper use, um, cars and all that kind of thing. And youngsters particularly don't see the point of owning a car. You know, why Why are we fixated on owning things that just depreciate as soon as we've bought them? That seems a bit, a bit backwards. Why don't we just pay to use something? So the convenience, I think, is really at the heart of this. And that's what I like about the, um, the circular economy car, the River Simple car that's been developed in Wales. Um, by a team of ex-Formula One engineers. So it uses a fuel cell instead of a battery. Um, and it's designed to be a local car. So it's not designed to be a car that you would want to go on holiday in. And maybe then you, you, know, you hire a different car. Um, but it's designed to be a local car that you, can, that you can recharge easily and run about easily. And it's all designed on a circular economy basis. So you don't own the car, you just pay to use it. So that's the River Simple car, is it? Mm, riversimple.com, and you can find lots out lots about them. And the Welsh government is investing in them. And um, DHL, the big transport and parcel operator, have, um, in the last few months signed a memorandum of, memorandum of understanding with River Simple to, um, you know, look at how they could develop the River Simple complex com concept into. Um, vehicles suitable for deliveries, so maybe parcel deliveries locally and that kind of thing. So DHL obviously see the fuel cell technology as a, as a good way forward. Um, and just coming back to another problem of the, uh, the um, internal combustion engine, as well as us uh, generally in, in cars not utilising them enough because they're parked up for most of the day, less than 1% of the fuel that we put in the car is actually used to move the person car. 80% um, of it is lost in the inefficiencies of the engine and the rest is moving the car, which has got heavier over the last number of years as we've added more and more features to it and more um, materials and crash proofing and comfort. Um, so, you know, only 1% is actually doing, doing the job of moving the person from A to B. Just going back there, this, this River Simple context uh, concept you say it has got a fuel cell so mm. if i'm correct that means it runs on hydrogen is that right yes and we're seeing lots of developments for green hydrogen and just near where i live uh, well nearish uh, on teesside 
Um, BP have announced that they're opening a green hydrogen plant on Teesside. Um, so if we're using renewable energy to create the hydrogen, then it can be part of a long-term sustainable solution. But that's green hydrogen because there are lots mm. of different kinds. In fact, I think you can go around the whole colours of the rainbow in terms of defining hydrogen. So that's green hydrogen. Mm. Um, have, you, have you got thoughts on, on hydrogen, uh, Adrian, as, as a means of transport? I mean, I know that Toyota have got the Mirai, which is their uh, mm -hmm. hydrogen car, which looks very nice, but I don't know of any filling stations anywhere near me. What do you think about hydrogen? Hydrogen is an interesting one. Um, it will start quite a lot of uh, negotiation, shall we say, on various social medias. From um, an engineering point of view, the systems engineer, um, hydrogen has real benefits in certain theatres, but when it gets us to the small sort of um, three, four, seven user car, it starts to have very, um, very more challenges than solutions uh, we found. So a hydrogen vehicle is an electric vehicle. It's a fuel cell electric vehicle, FCEV. It's actually a battery electric vehicle with additional technology put on top. So fuel cell vehicles will have a battery as the uh, intermediary between the fuel cell and the drivetrain and then it will share the same technology it's a much smaller battery than a battery electric vehicle which is a benefit but then you've got all the materials in the fuel cell you've got the pressurized fuel tanks which as Toyota have shown incredibly safe so that's not a problem but they are an extra weight and then there is the as you say the sourcing of the hydrogen the current um mix is about 95 percent of hydrogen is not green in the world it's, it's produced from um, fossil fuels, mainly gas, and it takes a lot more energy then to produce it. Um, and there's a lot of industry which uses a lot of hydrogen already, uh, including the fuel industry, to um, crack heavy oils into lighter fuels to use those. So the carbon, so the carbon intensive industry becomes even more carbon intensive to use the hydrogen. So renewable hydrogen is a way forward, but there are so many better uses for it. I would say at the moment as a system to decarbonize um, other industries, uh, metal production, um, agriculture, all the uses of hydrogen first before looking at a vehicle which would take about three times as much energy to produce the hydrogen, ship it, get it into the vehicle and then use it in the vehicle than actually piping the electric directly to the vehicle. Uh, in the UK, that's about 90% effective and then you've got losses in the vehicle itself. Um, but for hydrogen, it's about 30% efficient from the green production to the wheel. And um, yes, that's brilliant if there was a lot of it and there just isn't enough of it yet. So from an engineering solution and an energy solution, it's not ideal for the small vehicle, for the larger vehicles, um, lorries, uh, aircraft, ships, those sorts of things. Then the mix becomes different and that extra technology bit disappears. The, um, the value to getting the energy into the vehicles this reduces and it becomes a much more viable option. So yeah, hydrogen is an idea in the small commuter car, probably not. Um, but for the solutions, definitely, and decarbonizing some of the industries which use it, definitely. Mm. Right. Well, you you mentioned in passing there piping the electricity to the electric car. Mm -hmm. Now we have thirty million cars, I think, in this country. Yeah, thirty-two. If yeah. we were going to plug them all in, if they were all electric, or even if it was just ten percent of them, particularly as we are talking now about improving convenience by having ultra rapid chargers. 
surely we are going to have a problem not only with generating enough additional electricity to power all those vehicles, but also a problem in getting that very high current uh, across the country to all the charging points from all the generating stations. Yes, there is a an ongoing sort of chicken and egg battle of where do we need the electricity. Um, the UK grid fortunately has more than enough capacity. It, it has twice the capacity that we use, and that's mainly to cover peak. So um, I think the sums are about 150 terawatt hours a year the UK uses, but it has a capacity of about 750. But that's purely because the peaky way that we use energy uh, in all nations, because when the it used to be when the uh, adverts used to come on in Coronation Street, all the kettle would go on and go with huge peaks and the national grid would manage that on our behalf. Um, and then they'll tap and then they'll um, pull it back again. And then we won't use any overnight, which is why you ended up with economy seven tariffs. So the overall capacity is there. And the UK grid has reduced by 17% in the last 20 years. Um, so we use 17% energy, less energy now than we did do with less populace than 20 years ago, uh, partly through to certain industries leaving and partly through economies. So better lighting, better heating, better ventilation at homes have reduced that. So the grid and the national grid as an organization is very happy they can manage the uptake of electric vehicles. That's their job is to ensure they can do that and um, listen to various of their engineers go through the process of doing that. But then they hand that responsibility um, and challenge onto the DNOs, the local operators who put these energy grids in. They, they're the ones who are interested when new housing developments go, when new industries go in. They have the real challenge of saying, okay, so we can get the energy, but how do we get it to where we need it? How do we get it to the homes who will have these new charges put in, the high power energy um, solutions, the um, you know, the rapid chargers, how do we get that there? Now, they have a very tricky balancing act, and they're the ones who will be trying to ensure that we can pipe that energy we can get to the right place uh, at the right time for what we need. And that takes planning, that takes time. So, yeah, if we'll eventually, what, we're about 300,000 electric vehicles at the moment, about 300,000 uh, plug-ins on top of that. So we will have to get there in a manageable way. Um, and it won't be equal, it won't be fair, which is very unfortunate. Um, there will be places which will be left out because it's just not economically viable. And so those will be the areas which will probably change last, unfortunately. Um, you say up in um, Swell, it's going to be you know, those sort of areas out of place, out of areas which are going to be difficult to get that energy to. But it will get there. We did it with the, with the petrol car. We'll get there with the electric car. The other problem, though, Catherine, is uh, if you can't park on your own property i expect you can but in a lot of places people park on the street they're talking about putting power um, charging points on lamp posts but people already um, get into big disputes over parking spaces in crowded london if there's a if, if the parking spaces are differentiated in so far as some have charging points and others don't it's going to get even worse isn't it yeah, I guess that, that's a potential conflict point. And there's also the um, different charging systems emerging. You know, you can't charge a Tesla car unless it's a Tesla charger and all that kind of stuff. You know, how, how that's been allowed to get going so quickly, you know, it should have been obvious to the government right from day one that we needed a compatible system. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think there are lots, lots of practicalities to try and resolve. 
Um, and, you know, it kind of brings us back to the, how do you make it, how do you make the whole mobility system more convenient and maybe picking up a, um, a car that's been ready charged that's not your car, it's the car you want to use for that journey, maybe that becomes more and more attractive. And that kind of fits in better with, I can't remember the terminology for them, but the sort of car-free um, communities, um, you know, where whole streets have been um, blocked off from regular car use. Yeah. Um, and so they're now becoming places where people can um, walk, socialise, kids can play and all the rest of it. So maybe we just have to rethink our approach to moving around completely. And if we can make the shared mobility systems more integrated and so much more convenient, then it becomes a, you know, a, a different decision between do I want to own this car, try and find somewhere to plug it in every night. Um, you know, there's all the cost of, of insurance and depreciation and maintenance. Um, you know, is that now such a big plus or what should I just go for the for the shared option? Um, so that seems to be the way, the way forward for perhaps the majority of city dwellers. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, I've joined the local car club, but I have to say I've never used it. I, I'm basically I'm waiting for my hybrid to finally die. It is 16 years old. Um, it's done 157,000 miles. I was hoping for more than that out of it, but um, it's worth keeping because it really doesn't cost anything. But uh, and I have the convenience, it's outside the front door and we can get in and go whenever we want. It's not that far to walk to where the uh, club car is, um, is parked. It's about a five minute walk. I think that's probably what we shall do. I will will not replace uh, the, the Prius once it dies, because, um, as you say, having tens of thousands of pounds sitting outside the front door for 95 percent of the time is just not a sensible thing to do. Uh, I haven't asked you, Catherine. I know that um, Adrian has an electric car. Do you have an electric car? No, I'm still um, motoring on in my um, uh, Land Rover, oh. um, having having had uh, a pretty a uh, scary situation um, about 10 years ago when all the roads were iced over and I was kind of sliding, sliding gently down down the hill with um, a steep drop on one side back towards our house. Um, so, um, yeah, so I'm, so I'm going to stick with that until, like, like all my previous cars, until it gets to the point of needing extremely expensive repairs because it's so old. Um, and I'm hoping by then um, the whole dilemma of, you know, which car do you go for, a hybrid or an electric, or is, is there a, a hydrogen option, or is there even a local car share option? Hoping all of that kind of resolves itself within the next the next couple of years. But um, you know, the, there's no such thing as a sustainable purchase. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's be better to keep what you've got, I think, than um, you know, convince yourself that buying a new thing is is uh, environmentally better. Um, so, and one of the things we've not we've not talked about is the design of the cars. Um, you know that we're still not designing cars to be upgraded. Um, you know why can't why couldn't cars have a standard chassis that you could um, have modules that plug in and plug out, and therefore when there's a more energy efficient um, you know motor system or braking system or whatever it is, that's what gets swapped in. Um, there's no, there's not been really any um, move forward in that. There's still multiple types of materials. I read 
Um, and this was a, a book that's about 10 years old, saying that there were 40 different types of plastic in the modern car. So it's probably even worse now. And the majority of those plastics will be bonded together or bonded to some metal, making the whole thing really difficult to recycle. So designing for upgrades and designing for recycling, I think, are developments that are much needed across the car um, industry. There is a, a parallel, of course, in the mobile phone market. There's the Fairphone, which is... Oh, you have one. Yes, which does everything that you say. It is modular. You can take pieces out, you can replace them, and uh, you, you can upgrade it effectively. But mm. the Fairphone has, what, 1% of the market or less? Um, yeah, it's probably about 1%, I think. Um, but, but it is growing. Um, and, you know, there's no reason why Apple, Samsung, and the others couldn't ad adopt that same approach. So yeah. it's, this, it's this mentality shift away from planned obsolescence, which is how an awful lot of business models are, um, uh, you know, are, are designed yeah. toward, towards customer for life and product for life. So the product should have a life of its own, which mm. kind of happens with cars these days. You know, most cars have multiple owners through their lifetime and the car um, or the automotive industry system is set up to have good repair facilities and so on. It's just that they're not really these days designing for longevity. And what I think is quite interesting about the electric vehicle market is just how many startups and existing businesses are offering services to convert vintage cars into electric. Um, and vintage is more attractive, apparently, because they're less complicated, there are less electronics involved. Um, you know, it's easier to get into the guts of the system and replace the parts you need. So if you've got an old, um, you know, classic Citroen or Saab or Land Rover or whatever it is, you can get those converted to electric relatively easily. So maybe that's a better way to go than um, buying a new car. Yes, yes. Adrian, I think you indicated that you have actually got more than one car. You've got something in addition to your um, leaf. Is that right? Yeah. So um, funny, like yourself, we started with a, with a Prius back in 2008. And um, that when I was told that would only last three or four years with cost yeah. of fortune for the battery being replaced. Yeah. It was not as good as the diesel. Yeah, we sold that when it was 14 years old. Um, like yourself, they just don't die. And don't so that's, that's good. Um, but so we... Then looked at, um, was it back 2018 for a battery electric vehicle? The only ones out at the time were really the Leaf, the um, Renault and the Teslas, which are just verified atmosphere to buy one of those. So we went for a plug-in hybrid. So that's our main family car is a plug-in hybrid Outlander. It's a SUV, but we just had a, um, a dog and got a uh, son and it was the only thing which would take everything everywhere and being uh, four by four I, I thoroughly um, recommend something which will go in the snow um, so that is good for snow and off-road and then about um, a year ago we were due to family reasons we needed a second car so that's when the, um, the battery electric came in because it was no-brainer at that point um, it didn't need to go very far it only needs to be a round town car it needed to be a smaller car and that's why we ended up with the uh, Nissan Leaf a 2015 one and again, people saying the batteries won't last. That's six, seven years old. Um, that's still with over 90% of its battery capacity. And um, one of the points which Catherine was saying about actually having vehicles which should be modular, should be replaceable. Um, the Leaf is a quite an interesting one. Being one of the first electric vehicles in the UK, 
there is a, there is several companies which will upgrade the battery and change the battery. So the very early versions had a different battery chemistry and they did have issues. So 2011, 2012 versions. And you can change the batteries for a higher capacity battery and it gives the vehicle an extra lease of life. It's like changing a battery in a phone. You then have for a second life, it can move on. Um, Neo, one of the Chinese manufacturers, they have a battery swap service um, that came through on my feed yesterday, 5.3 million battery swaps. And that not only means that the vehicles are consistently, you know, the best charged available, as the chemistry and the technology moves on, the batteries are getting bigger and the cars have got better range because they can just swap them in. It's basically like changing a phone in a battery, in a, in a, in a, a battery in a phone, sorry. So that model um, works well. So as technology moves on and things get better, um, you can change those. The rest of them, they're designed to last, uh, as you say, the length of the car, but if you can change the components in a battery electric vehicle, there's 10,000 odd components in an internal combustion engine vehicle. And in the drivetrain of a battery electric vehicle, there's eight moving parts. So uh, <laughs> it, it should be much simpler to swap those items in and out. So if the chassis, if the bodywork, if the shell can last 20, 30 years, it is easy or should be a lot easier to change the battery provided the battery has been installed in a certain way, um, you know, to change the motor train. And I think was one of the Teslas, it's about 750,000 miles, but it's, um, it's a bit like the ubiquitous broom. Um, it's had four new motors and three new batteries. So <laughs> the only thing that stays the same is the chassis. Um, yeah. And I like the idea, I think it was from one of your previous podcasts about the circular economy when it comes to things like batteries, is that... Um, the batteries, when they come out of vehicles, which comes to the end of their life, mainly due to um, vehicles doing too many miles or the vehicle being damaged in a non-destructive way, those batteries are going off to another life. Um, they are being used in energy storage by a few companies, which will take them, especially from the Nissan Leafs at the moment, for grid storage and home storage, which then brings into an oval type economy. Um, and so even if the vehicle dies, the battery lives on. And they're living on, they're hoping for an extra 10 years beyond the original 10 years they're originally intended for. So some of this has been thought about, but I agree, not enough of it. And that's probably more an industry problem uh, than the electric vehicle problem. Mm, I agree. And what's, and your, I think, what's your take, Catherine, on, on recycling batteries? Yeah, I think um, Adrian's right that it's, you know, it's kind of more of an oval economy because it is, um, you know, downcycling. They're not now fit for the purpose that they were originally intended. And, um, you know, we perhaps there's been some thinking behind that, but I think it's perhaps more accidental. You know, people have been looking to see how could I reuse this waste resource, this unused battery? What else could it be used for? And luckily, there are a few uses for that. But again, with legislation, things could be designed with that in mind that, you know, if there is no way of um, rejuvenating the battery so that it's suitable to be used in, a, in another car, then let's have a progressive down cycle, but let's make sure that the battery is designed with those secondary uses in mind so that we're designing for the next life of the battery and the next life of the battery and so on. And legislation could easily do that. And just coming back to the, you know, the reason I think why the automotive industry has been so slow to take up electric cars, because remember, you know, electric vehicles have been around for um, decades and decades and decades. So it's not a new, it's not a new thing. But of course, with the, um, the lack of maintenance needed for all those moving parts, there wasn't the work for all the, um, the local garages, which, of course, sell you the new car when your maintenance is starting to get a bit expensive. 
And so that they've been resistant to that because it was going to take away quite a bit of revenue from the from the industry. But there's a different way to look at it. If we're selling the car as a service instead of selling you the ownership of the car, then that can become a different proposition. And you're now, um, you know, maybe you're doing more more cleaning services or the you know the battery refresh or more you know tests. It might be a lighter touch, but you can still keep the relationship with the customer, and you can provide more flexible finance options. Maybe you provide the small car that people need for most of the year. And as part of the service, you have, you know, three, four weeks access to, um, you know, an estate car or an SUV um, for your holiday trips, that kind of thing. It can all be part of the same package. And just going back to Volvo, the example Adrian used at the beginning, um, and I've before my Land Rover, I've had four Volvos and, and kept them all for, you know, as long as absolutely long as possible. Um, and the next car might be a Volvo if they get get sorted with electric, but they're now really experimenting with lots of circular economy um, interventions, including providing the car as a subscription service. Um, so they're really looking um, wholeheartedly at that, you know, how do we create a completely different system of providing the service of a car to our users? And BMW, um, though they've, they've stopped it now, maybe they've stopped it because of the issues of lockdown and the pandemic. But a few years ago, they started a car, um, paper use car system called DriveNow. Um, and what they discovered, um, having set this up to appeal to BMW owners who love the mark and love the, you know, the feel of the BMW. So the idea was that if you were abroad on business or something, you could um, paper use um, for a BMW. So you've got a car that you're comfortable with and it, you know, it fits your personal brand image and all the rest of it. But what they found was that lots of non-BMW owners hired those cars. <clears throat> so suddenly that gave them access to a whole raft of potential future customers. They were able to start engaging with those people. So it's not, I think if companies think differently about how can we adopt the circular economy to make our business more attractive and convenient for the customer by changing the way we charge for things by changing the way that we look after the product for life and we enable the customer to easily give that product back to us and for it to have another another life um, with maybe with somebody who's happier to start with a three or four year old vehicle that kind of thing so you're providing the the backup and the reliability and the promise that this car is going to be reliable convenient economic all the things that we want from it and thinking that way and starting to think about the long, long term, how do I keep this customer happy so they keep coming back for more and more, starts to bring in the opportunity for different solutions instead of it being, how do I make this exciting, but then I've got to spend millions on marketing so that the customer still thinks it's exciting next time around. And when you look at the adverts for lots of cars now, you know, we're seeing lots of adverts for things that have been um, deprioritized during, during lockdown. An awful lot of the adverts are about the excitement or how it fits with your personal image. You know, how's this, how's this whatever bottle of perfume or, um, you know, car or whatever else they're trying to sell. How's it going to um, put a shine on, on your personal image? Uh, and that's, that sort of seems a bit, a bit vacuous, really. I think for cars, we really want them to be comfortable, safe, convenient, economic, reliable.
yeah, I, I also used to own a Volvo. I don't think I bought it for the image status. <laughs> just no, exactly, it for the dogs exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's my other excuse for the Land Rover is that we've got we've got two dogs, one of whom is uh, rather rather large. <laughs> yeah. I think at the back of all this, there's a um, a lot of inertia. Insofar as there is a change that vehicles are becoming electric but they're vehicles which look very much like the vehicles we had before. The traffic jams will still be there because just changing the motive power doesn't do anything about it. You'll still need the car parks. Uh, you'll still provide wonderful convenience for those who have cars. And uh, because they're not using public transport, it'll get worse and worse for people who don't have access to cars. So how are we going to overcome this inertia? Do we see any signs of anybody, the industry, the government, or anybody at all, taking a serious uh, view of this? Now, you're an advisor to Colchester Council, and you talk to them about electric vehicles. Do you, just, do you um, cover this sort of uh, question, Adrian? So we, um, we cover all sorts of questions, and the one which um, I got personally involved in after my son had a other um nasty asthma attack and was taken off to hospital uh, due to the air quality in Colchester we have several areas which breach the law in that respect and it's a case of looking not only at how do we change the air quality but as you say how do we reduce the um, congestion um, cars as a service is in, in, in big cities and towns it works really well and uh, I know quite a lot of uh, work with quite a lot of <laughs> younger people as I can say now um, and until they get a family they don't see the need for a vehicle and so that helps reduce that they don't see them as a, an asset or, a, or as a status symbol uh, they're just a bind and they'd rather just jump in bus or uh, jump on a bike or jump in a hire car when they get children that seems to change a little but um, that's apparently quite common around Europe. Um, but in Colchester, it's, it is about reducing um, the amount of people who feel they need to jump in the car. So there's been quite a, a big uptake, especially during COVID, in improving the cycle structure. So a lot of the changes they put in for um, making distances between pedestrians, that spare space they've taken off roads. So actual roads have been reduced. The number of miles of roads have been reduced. Um, they've moved on to cycle lanes instead. So they've kept the demarcations and moved one of them into a cycle lane, producing some really nice cycle routes through town, safely through town. And that's one of the big things is the safety angle of keeping bikes away from cars, bikes away from pedestrians, pedestrians away from the pair of them. And that led to um, a big um, consultation last year. And so we worked with that. And they're looking to actually put in a lot more infrastructure for cycling, for walking, and the park and ride, um, which they produced just outside of the Colchester main town, um, and then busing people into the centre, um, that they're putting in recharging points. So they're hoping people commute to Colchester, buy an electric vehicle, charge their vehicles up, and then jump on the bus to come into the town centres. It's because there's less roads now, because of the cycle lanes and the foot, in, footpaths. So when towns and cities work in that sort of way together with the citizens we can and say unfortunately due to what's happened in the last couple of years and see that it works uh, changes can be made but there is a lot of inertia there's a lot of resistance by those who want to just go i want to get in my car and go when i where i want when i want you can go and sit in your own traffic jams in your own time if you don't mind mm. well i think yes, there, there is there is inertia and the, but there are lots of things that can try and normalize this and um, I 
remember reading stories about um, how in America they'd had a problem with the designated driver, you know, the, the person staying sober on nights out. So people just weren't weren't doing that. And they really wanted to get to grips with this. So they asked the writers of um, the um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, sitcom Friends and there was another one to just write that into the story as a normal thing. And within quite a short space of time, um, people were happily being designated drivers and it had just become normalised. Mm. And um, I happened to, um, when I was staying with my parents a while ago, happened to be watching Coronation Street for the first time in, in decades and noticed there was there was a campaign going on to make, um, you know, the main street uh, car free um, and all the sort of, um, you know, the, the debate around that and what it was going to do to the local businesses who were, you know, anti it because people wouldn't be able to just park outside and, and buy stuff. So there are, you know, there, there are things to overcome, but I think normalizing it and making it as convenient as possible and having this interconnected system so that, you know, you've just got one, one app or one card and that pays for everything um, and democratizing it. You know, why, why shouldn't we have Uber type systems and car share systems that are owned by the community? Why, why should it all be in private hands so that, um, you know, you can be exploited um, if if it if the if the company ends up with a monopoly monopoly situation and with the deep pockets of investors behind companies like Uber and so on, um, you know that's all too easy to do. And I think the other thing to reduce the it's not just the cars, is it? It's the delivery vehicles, particularly as we're all buying more online. And if the government changed its competition law, there's no reason at all why one delivery company couldn't do all the deliveries in a in an area you know when you look at the delivery maps the route maps of the 405 parcel delivery companies they're all covering similar routes so that's five vehicles in one day um you know with with more miles between each drop and less efficient and that could all just be contracted to one of them they all they all pay to do it um, and it becomes much more efficient and convenient for the person who's receiving the deliveries well, thank you. Now, as we draw this to a close, because we've been on for nearly 45 minutes, um, let's go back to the question we started with. Adrian, is the electric vehicle the future? I, I see it as a part of the solution to the future. When we can't go for the alternatives, it is better than you know, the fuel type vehicles. Um, in and amongst hydrogen, as long as they are uh, environmentally friendlier, um, less hostile, then I think they're part of the solution. And Catherine? Yeah, I agree with that. It needs to be part of a more thought through, interconnected and community oriented system. Well, thank you both very much. That's really been an interesting discussion. Catherine Wheatman, Adrian Bond, thank you both very much. Thank Thanks, you. Anthony. I'm very grateful to both Catherine and Adrian for sharing their ideas. Catherine mentioned the River Simple hydrogen car. You can find out more at riversimple.com. She also recommended a book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World by Jason Hickel. I've put a link to that on the website. If you're a patron and you have ideas you'd like to discuss, please get in touch. Patrons support the Sustainable Futures Report with a monthly contribution of £5 or so. If you'd like to help this podcast stay ad-free and independent, please join us. 
There's a button on the website, or you can go to patreon.com slash sfr, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr. During January, I am working on improving the infrastructure of the Sustainable Futures Report, the social media presence and so on, so there'll be no Friday editions until the 4th of February. There will be Wednesday interviews, some Wednesdays at least. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Wednesday interview from the Sustainable Futures Report. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.